Now this morning we're going to start on a a brand new series, uh, and this series will be called The Transformed Life. And and through it I want uh, us to sort of work on finding some practices, some truths from the time of Jesus that can help us as disciples of Christ be transformed today. I also want to see how, as a community of believers, we can implement some of these practices to see church be a place of transformation, not just in the building here, but in our wider community. As with all aspects of discipleships, we're called to live out transformed lives. But what does it look like for the church to be transformed? Why, why should the church, why should you as individuals engage in the next seven weeks of discipleship sort of uh, practices? I want to suggest that we all need to be reminded of the goodness of God to each of us. And our response to God's goodness is what we do. We cannot forget what Jesus has done for us. Romans 12 reminds us that we are to be living sacrifices. A sacrifice is about giving something up for something of greater value. What more can we give back to God who sacrificed Jesus for us? other than our very selves. So before we get stuck into the first practice that we're going to look at today, it'd be good just to give some insight as to why we as a church should explore some practices, transformation practices. What's the foundation of a transformed life? And why should we seek a transformed church? So I want to suggest three things that will help us to, to think about this. The first thing is that we need to choose tradition rather than traditionalism. Now, tradition is not bad. Sometimes it's been seen as a bad word, doesn't it? It gets a bad rap. The fact is, it's vital to formulate a picture of the future. If we don't know what the past has been like, how can we formulate a way forward? I'm constantly amazed at Kyra. Now, Kyra, my six-year-old, she'll often stumble her way from her bedroom in the middle of the night almost fully asleep, and make it to our room uh, without any bumps or bruises. Now, that sounds like it's not that far. It's actually not that far, and it's a corridor. So it sounds like it should be easy. But if you've seen her room, you'll know that it's not that easy because there is Lego. And you know what Lego's like? It's a minefield on the floor. So she somehow gets through all of her Lego that is all through the floor and makes it all the way to our bed. Now, she does that because she knows the journey. She's done it many, many times over her six years. She knows where the points where she could stub her toe and she avoids them. She knows where she could whack her knee or bump into a shelf. And somehow she knows where all the Lego is. It's incredible. But because of the past, she's able to journey into her future and get into our bedroom without any problem. She, tried, she gets shifted straight back most of the time anyway, <laughs> but, so she knows the journey back as well. <laughs> but tradition within the church is sometimes seen as a, as a bad word, something, that, um, something of the past that we should never bring back to life. But I want to suggest for the church to fully transform. Learning and growing from tradition actually sets the church moving forward. This is as opposed to traditionalism. Seeing the past as we need to revive exactly what it was. The glory years of there should be the glory years of now. See, tradition asks to take some of the elements and question how can we learn from them 
And how can we continue to change within the society that is continually changing? Diana Butler Bass, in her book, Christianity for the Rest of Us, she says this, Recovering the practice of the early church and offering them in a way that is contemporary. That is contemporary. The church can use it and find meaning within it. As a church, we, we shouldn't treat tradition as a museum piece to be guarded. Rather, it should be, as one pastor claimed, it should be like this, the clay of Christian experience, material that successive generations of believers must craft together with faithful care. I like that. So tradition over traditionalism. The second thing we've got to choose is practice, not purity. We're to live out, if we're to live out the Jesus way of, of living, we need to make sure we're not a, a box church of judgment. That we need to be a church that doesn't prescribe a certain way before you can walk through the door. Now, we don't ever say that, do we? We never say that we have to look like this before you come through the door of KSBC or you come through my house door or whatever. But do we subconsciously expect it? I should be a better Christian before I get baptised. I can't serve in this church because if you knew how I responded to the guy who cut me off on the way to church, you wouldn't let me do that anyway. <laughs> Perhaps I won't even come to church anymore because I just feel judged in my pew. You know, Jesus took this ragtag bunch of men and women on a journey over three years. He taught them. He sent them out. He pulled them back into line when they needed to pull into line. And then he handed the baton across to them to build the church of which he was the cornerstone. He didn't wait until they were perfect. Paul had what, was called, what he called a thorn in his flesh. It was some deep pain, some affliction that was impacting who he was, his very identity. Yet through that thorn, whether it was a sin or a blockage, whatever it was, Paul actually found the grace of God. And in that, he found God's redemption through his frailty. See, God intersects with the average, fallen, broken sinner. And in our weakness, God flourishes. I love this quote that I found this week. Competence is not where God's power lies. Frailty is. Feebleness. For there God's grace ignites. There God himself dwells. Perhaps it's when the church strives for perfection that we actually start to miss out on seeing God's working through our weakness. Now, that doesn't say we should settle for mediocre, does it? We shouldn't just settle for mediocre. But rather, we should allow God's perfection to shine in and through our imperfection. So it's true practice, not purity or perfection. The third thing is that we've got to choose wisdom and not certainty. I wonder, as a, as a person, as an individual, or even as a church, how do we cope with ambiguity? What happens when uh, black and white meet grey? What happens when scripture doesn't provide the right answer? When a church allows people to consider grey, we allow for people to ask deep faith questions. The moment that we think we know... We actually have lost our perspective on wisdom. The search and the journey is maybe to get to a point where I'm at peace now with what I do and understand. 
One definition of wisdom put it like this. Maybe wisdom is a good way of putting it. It's a search for meaning and growth without saying it. Without saying it has to be one way or the other. It's not black and white. Now, hear that right. There is black and white in Scripture. There is black and white in doctrine. There is a distinct doctrinal understanding of who we are as a Baptist church. That's true. Our faith convictions are deep within the black and white. But do we allow grey to be asked? Uh, A month and a half ago, or maybe even two months ago, the decision to change our constitution and allow people who have been baptised in a mode other than full immersion is a good example of this. As a Baptist church, we're black and white. When you ask for baptism, we believe in full immersion and you won't have any other option. (laughs) However, as a church, we're able to wrestle through the grey of opening up our membership to those who have been baptised through different faith traditions. And I believe that opening up the church, uh, we will, in this way, will become a fully inclusive church. It's a big step, and that step took us two years to get to, or over two years to get to. It's a big wrestle that we took. Not everyone saw it in the same way, yet through it, we were able to make decisions. See, when it comes to God, we can never claim to have the full knowledge of God. To fully know God is an aim. Yet no matter how much we read, no matter how much we study, we'll never know the absolute fullness of God. We cannot ever claim certainty. But through wisdom, we can continue to search for meaning and growth and wrestle in the grey. A church that allows questions of all shapes and sizes. A church that isn't worried about wrestling with the issues that may end up with differing opinions. Is a church that actually allows unity within difference. It uses wisdom. It listens. It allows for the unknown. And it rests in the tension that perhaps the answer is still to be revealed to us. So tradition, practice... And wisdom. They set the foundation for this whole series, for the, the, the transformation within our lives and the church. And it's going to be the benchmark of what we do for the next seven weeks. So, within that, we're going to look at, at a practice today uh, that is about welcoming strangers. I wonder if you've ever used the term of someone that's coming to your house. Make yourself at home. Has anyone used that term? Make yourself at home. Yeah, I've used it before. I've used that term. Uh, you, if, you, if you think about what you've literally said to someone, in a literal sense, you've asked them to come into your house and treat your house in exactly the same way that they would treat their own house. Is that what you really meant? <laughs> well, if you know the person, it might be. If you don't know the person, probably wouldn't be. <laughs> it probably isn't. And when I've said that to me, I don't, if, if someone said that to me, hey, Pete, make yourself at home. I certainly don't take off my shoes and socks and chuck my feet up on the couch, go grab some, something out of the fridge and cook up a, a little bit of a meal and, and, uh, and sit down and turn the tally on and, and sort of forget the world around me. I don't, I don't do that. Normally, I'd sit in the lounge room and wait politely until the person comes back and we'll have a chat or whatever it might be. <laughs> what we're really saying in this statement, make yourself at home, we're actually saying is that when you come into my house... I hope you feel welcome. I hope you feel accepted into this space. And I've used the words to people, and I don't expect them to come in and do anything other, but I hope 
that they feel fully accepted. It doesn't even refer to your home, though, does it? You might invite someone to, into your workplace or into a social setting or something like that and say a similar sort of thing. You might not say exactly the same words. But you are inviting people to acceptance, into a belonging. But it also comes with a bit of an unwritten caveat, doesn't it? Make yourself at home, but don't go and drink my iced coffee out of the fridge. <laughs> Make yourself at home, but you need to follow the rules of the house. Make yourself at home, but you're not allowed into my room. Make yourself at home, but abide by the group's unwritten code, which may have never been articulated, yet it exists, so good luck trying to find out what it is. <laughs> Make yourself at home seems like a welcoming call, but perhaps we don't fully understand what we're saying. So this morning, as we dig into the two scriptures that Sean read for us, we'll be exploring the practice that seemed to be a response of the Israelites to the law and a command from, the command from Jesus to love one another. Because the welcoming of the stranger is surprisingly a common command in, in Scripture. Whether it's framed as a welcoming of a stranger, a welcoming of the sojourner, the person on the way, I suppose, the foreigner, even the resident alien, um, there's hundreds of Scriptures that tell us of how people should treat the stranger. And they all revolve around the phrase, make yourself at home, more so than let's build a wall, fortify yourself. Imagine they're not there. Hebrews 31, it gives us a starting point of how we should treat one another. It says this, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Keep on doing this. Verse 1 of chapter 13 in Hebrews sets a tone for the whole of chapter 13. If you go home today, go and read chapter 13 of Hebrews. It's full of practical exhortations about how to live as people of Christ. But the beginning point of all those exhortations is this one verse. Love. Keep on loving one another. The Hebrew Christians would have, have that command etched in their mind as part of the law. Love your neighbour as yourself. It's a reminder that all things begin with a love for those who are around them. So he moves from this love straight into verse 2. And in verse 2, we're going to explore two sections of this verse. He moves into a hospitality to strangers and then a hospitality of angels. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. So out of a love for one another, the writer moves straight into the command to show hospitality to strangers. Now some translations to translation in front of you might say to entertain strangers. Now by entertaining, entertaining the strangers, we're not talking about um, thinking movie night with popcorn and, and melted butter slathered all over it and a bit of the, um, the icing sugar on top and that sort of thing. As much as we love that and we're entertained by that, Rather, if we explore the Greek word for hospitality to strangers, it's a word that compromises two, two original words. First, phylos, which means friend, and xenos, which means strangers. So the literal meaning of the word that is used in the Greek there is warmth shown to strangers, or a love shown to strangers. In fact, the term hospitality uh, that we use in the English comes from a Latin word, hospice, which means visitor and stranger. So when we look at this verse, verse 2 in Hebrews 13, we're called to continue to love one another 
and show hospitality, show love towards not only the people that we love well, our brothers and sisters, but also those we do not know, the stranger. In ancient times, showing love to a stranger was vital for foreigners who were travelling through. Perhaps they were travelling through town for trade or for pilgrimage. But it was vital that there were those who upheld Jesus' call to love your neighbour as yourself. Love the stranger. Take them into your home. Hey, feel at home. With the emergence of international travel with hotels and hospitality venues everywhere, Airbnb, the idea of entertaining strangers has totally disappeared. In fact, people are warier of someone seeking to welcome and befriend a stranger for no apparent reason, and they opt to conclude that that person must want something of them. Perhaps the church has lost a fair bit of that ancient tradition of hospitality, of loving and entertaining strangers, simply because strangers are no, no longer sojourning through our towns. They're no longer pilgrims seeking to take refuge in, refuges in homes. They go to a, a wonderful Airbnb, which doesn't cost all that much, but it gives you their privacy and it doesn't put anyone out. And therefore, hospitality in the church has turned from this ancient tradition of welcoming strangers to having a potluck lunch, as much as we love the old potluck lunches. Well, that was pre-COVID anymore. Or even having a lunch at the pub with a few other churchgoers. Henry Nguyen, he suggests that the stranger, though, is closer than we expect. He called the contemporary society, he says this, is a world of strangers, estranged from their own past, culture and country, from their neighbours, their friends, their families, from the deepest parts, deepest self and from their God. Strangers are all around us. Maybe you feel that yourself. Within the sea of people that are around you, you feel like a stranger mixed in a world that is rapidly changing. You feel like culture might have passed you by or that you no longer feel that you are connected with those who are around you and maybe even you sit in the congregation today knowing that many people are happy to talk to you yet you feel a stranger trying to work out what it really means to belong and to be accepted. Nguyen goes on to propose that if there is any concept worth restoring to its original depth, it's this concept of hospitality. Hospitality provides space where strangers become friends. Hospitality's sole purpose is not to change people, but to offer space where change may be able to take place. Can you imagine a church, a community where you live, the local coffee shop, can you imagine it being a place where people can change from being strangers to feeling at home? I had a good friend in Newport. His name was David. David was a, a blokey bloke. Each morning, he, uh, so he's a builder as well, he'd go to the same cafe at ridiculous times of the morning and buy his coffee. He would sit down and he would just chat to anyone that came through the doors. I'd every now and again go and sit, set a time to catch up with Dave and we'd go to this cafe. But what I found is that it wasn't a time for me to catch up with Dave at all. I couldn't find out how he was travelling. I couldn't stop and have a conversation about what the kids were doing or anything like that. Rather, it was a time where I got to know 
this community of strangers that has started to know each other on deep levels. There were conversations about how the kids were going. What new health struggle was going on in, in your mothers in their mothers' lives? How badly the footy was, how bad the footy was again on the weekend. The conversations were endless, where strangers came and found, found space to become friends. Over time, Dave was able to share his deep faith convictions. They all knew where he stood. They were not confronted by it. They were not fearful of it. Rather, Dave made space for friendships to form and change could, could happen. If we're to get back to the biblical roots of hospitality, of welcoming or entertaining strangers, we must move from hospitality being a program of the church, something we do to make people feel welcome. We must see it as a way of living, a way of living out the welcome that we've all received ourselves, this welcome into God's kingdom, strangers on a journey, welcome in with the opened arms of Christ. If we look back into Leviticus chapter 19, which Sean read for us also, we see that this is not just a New Testament principle. It comes directly from the law. It says, when a foreigner resides among you, an alien, uh, a sojourner, when they uh, uh, reside among you in the land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. Can you hear the similarities in it? That your translation might say foreigner or alien. Don't think Sigourney Weaver type alien, but alien, someone who wasn't around and now they are around. These were laws given to God's people regarding how people who were not part of their heritage, not part of their system, were to be treated. So don't mistreat them. Treat them like they are native born. Love them as yourself. Do you reckon the readers of Hebrews 13 would have connected those dots? I reckon they probably did. God has a very clear message regarding the welcome of strangers. And at the end of Leviticus, 30, at the end of Leviticus 34, it tells us why. Well, 34, um, Leviticus 19.34 says this. You were foreigners in Egypt. You knew what it was like. You knew what it was like to be treated as the stranger. So how are you going to treat those who are in your midst that are the stranger? It brings us back to the second part of Hebrews 13 verses 2. Welcome the stranger because some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. If you Google uh, stories of where people have shown hospitality to angels, you're going to get plenty of, of, of stories where people have been unaware of what they've done and something great has happened. It's been amazing. They've been protected or guarded or something of the like. And you can find heaps of different stories. But what, the Hebrew readers, what would the Hebrew readers be thinking when they heard that sentence, that little half a sentence of entertaining angels? As they heard the words entertaining angels or hospitality to angels, perhaps their minds would have been drawn back to various moments in Scripture. But maybe there's one that I think they would have initially connected to, and that would have been from Genesis 18. It's here we have this story of Abraham, who was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. If Abraham was anything like me, sitting in the heat of the day 
doesn't make me energetic. I don't know if anyone else finds energy in the heat of the day. All you want to do is just sort of kick back and just relax and have a bit of a doze, a bit of a snooze. The last thing you want to do is have three men show up and expect some hospitality. (laughs) But in the heat of the day, Abraham looks up and sees these three men. And rather than just turning a blind eye to them, he gets up, he goes to them, and he greets them by bowing to the ground. It's a very formal, respectful way of greeting a stranger. He then goes into host modes. He says, oh, I've got to get some water for you so you can wash your feet. I'll get some food prepared and you can have some rest. He's saying, make yourselves at home. (laughs) He serves them and he shows us what it looks like to entertain, to welcome the stranger. The story goes on and the strangers tell the elderly Sarah that they will have a baby, that she'll have a baby. She has a laugh and it's not the right response from Sarah, but um, the, the, the angels send this prophecy to her. The story doesn't stop there. You've got to keep reading on because the next part of the story is just as important as Abraham entertaining these angels or welcoming the angels. Because uh, in the next part of the story, Abraham pleads with God to save Sodom. And, and after, after that... God says, well, if if there's 45 of them, we'll save them. 45 righteous ones, we'll save them. But after that, two of the angels, they head off to Sodom, uh, and and Lot shows hospitality to them. So we see another example of this great hospitality. Come on in. He protects them. He nurtures them. He has them in his home. He welcomes them. He says, make yourself at home. But the town are less welcoming and found out that they are wicked. And the story ends with Sodom being destroyed. You can read that through, um, through, Levit- uh, through Genesis 18, 19. You've got these two contrasting stories. Abraham and Lot, they welcomed, embraced them, cleaned them, fed them, gave them rest. Sodom and the people of Sodom did the exact opposite. They sought them out for their own gain. The results? Abraham lives to have a son. Lot is saved. And Sodom and Gomorrah are totally destroyed. Now, there are other stories throughout the Old Testament scriptures that remind people of Israel that the hospitality to the stranger is important. It was like it was a normal part of life. It was like it started to be embedded into their culture. It seemed it was their custom to make sure that the stranger was welcome. So if we consider Abraham's hospitality, he didn't ask questions of these three strangers that were coming towards him. He just welcomed them. He didn't ask, what do you want? He didn't ask, how long are you going to be staying? I've got sort of a pot roast cooking for dinner tonight. He just went and filled the foot spa, got some food ready and said, just relax. I'm not convinced that Abraham automatically knew he was hosting angels. He just showed hospitality as was his custom. And he just happened to be entertaining angels as well. Now that's important because our hospitality towards a stranger is not about what we might get back, whether angels or human. Our action to the stranger is actually our response to God's action to us. In our response to God in welcoming the stranger, us, God then works in the life of that stranger. He shows hospitality to us, that we may show hospitality to others. But it goes even beyond that. Because hospitality changes both the guest and the host. You're changed when you show hospitality. 
And of course, we do never know who that stranger may turn out to be. So as a church, as individuals, what does this mean for us? How do we entertain strangers and what do we need to do to make the stranger in our midst welcome? How does hospitality become a common practice within our personal lives and within the life of the church? How do we welcome the stranger? You can do it this morning. It might be as simple as walking from one side of the room to the other side of the room and saying hello to someone you don't know or inviting them out to lunch. It might be inviting your neighbour that you've had a little bit of a chance to meet but it's all that polite, hi, how are you doing? It might be an opportunity to say, come over for a coffee. Let's go out for a meal together. It might be taking a bag of goodies to the man in the park that you always see in the park just on his own. You might say, hey, let's, let's go have some, some goodies together. It might be walking uh, through your street and being opened by the leading of God to say hi to the people that you don't know in their front yards. COVID had that. Everyone was sort of in their front yards in COVID because we couldn't go any, any further. So we walked down the street and someone would be out for their two hours walk. You'd stop and say hi. Let's not lose that. If you're, in new, if you're new in church today, or you feel like you're reasonably new in church, maybe you feel like you're the stranger still. My hope is that today you're embraced as part of the community of believers here. And please come to our, new, our newcomers' morning tea. But my hope is that you don't just feel welcome today. Because it's good to do the initial contact, isn't it? But it's the ongoing welcoming that we must continue to do. Because I can say, welcome today. But for the weeks ahead, my hope is that you'll still feel welcome. Perhaps you've been at KSBC for many, many years. But somehow you feel like a stranger yourself. My hope is that as a church, we'll get on board with welcoming strangers with open arms just as Christ opened his arms for each of us. You know what? We're exploring ways that we can reach into our community at the moment. As a a leadership, we've explored sort of the the thoughts of how we help the the schools with breakfast clubs. We want to see how we can uh, impact our community in new ways and keep an eye out for some opportunities to welcome strangers in our community. Welcoming the stranger, loving the stranger, it's a practice that we all need to work on. It's a practice that perhaps our busy, fast-paced lives have overlooked. But it's a practice that we must continue to do or reignite in our communities. I'm going to end with a quote from a theologian named Martin Murray. He says, In a world where strangers meet strangers with gunfire, with barrier walls, with spiritually landmined paths, the spirit of revenge and the record of intranscendence. It almost sounds dainty to come on the scene and urge that hospitality has a strong and promising place. But this is exactly what's needed. A place where the stranger is loved, is embraced and genuinely given the freedom to make themselves at home. That's what Jesus died for. And it's a response that we need to make as well. Let's welcome the stranger as a key practice of KSBC. Let me pray. Now, Lord and God, we thank you for the scripture that helps us to understand what it means to welcome the stranger. 
Lord, by your Holy Spirit, lead us to be welcomers. Lord, even if it doesn't come naturally to us, may we be people who embrace those who maybe feel a bit left, left out, a bit different, who feel alone, isolated. Those who are new in the area, those who are new to the church. Lord, may we be a church of embracing all, loving all, as we love you. We thank you, Lord.